Hi, this is Mike Metcalf. The system I want to talk about here, I will call the linguistic turn. It's a system whereby humans use language to interpret the world to solve problems. If you're going to problem solve, first thing you have to decide is what words or concepts you're going to use to solve that problem. Words, phrases, language, both identify and solve problems for us. My argument has five steps or turns, the first of which I'll attribute to Ludwig Wittgenstein. Other philosophers like James, uh, William James, uh, Martin Heidegger, and Richard Rorty have said much the same thing, but I will um, use Wittgenstein's work here. Uh, Wittgenstein is objecting to the uh, idealistic or picture theory of words, wanting rather a functional uh, understanding of words. The picture theory is usually attributed to Augustine. So what Augustine is saying, it come, it's a passage from very early on in the Confessions where Augustine is talking about his own acquisition of language yes. and he essentially says they, his parents or teachers yes. or whatever, held up an object, yes. let's say an apple, and yes. said apple yes. and that's how I learnt that this was called an apple and yes. this is the view which yes. Wittgenstein holds yes. to be mistaken. That's right, that we learn our language by so-called ostensive definition, that as children, things are pointed out to us, their names are repeated. You may learn what the word rose means in the context of, yes, seeing a flower. You may also learn it in the context of your father giving your mother a bouquet. You may learn it in the context of a pattern on a tablecloth. And you know, for example, that it is a symbol or can be a symbol of affection may be shown by the way a rose is presented by your father to your mother or whatever in your presence, i.e. when we learn the meaning of the word rose we also learn a whole set of connections that that word has. Um, we don't simply learn a noun. Um, we learn a range of its uses. Notice the use of the word uses. Here is John Searle reinforcing the point. Central to the early Wittgenstein is this picture theory of meaning. How did the later Wittgenstein depart from that? Well, again, though Wittgenstein's ideas are very complex, there's a rather simple answer to that question. He moved away from the picture metaphor of the nature of meaning to the tool or use metaphor as the correct conception of meaning. He says... Think of words as tools, and the way to understand language, the way to, to get a, a correct conception of how language functions, is to look at how words The structure are of the language determines what we think of as reality. We can't think of the world, we can't discuss the world, we can't have a conception of the world independent of the conceptual apparatus that we use for that purpose. Now, you've raised a lot of very fundamental concepts here, and I think we ought to mm -hmm. take them one at a time for the sake of clarity. Let's, let's begin where you began, with the uh, distinction between a picture theory of meaning and a tool theory of meaning. The later Wittgenstein is no longer saying that, a, that, that words or sentences 
picture what they're about. He's saying that a word or a sentence is like a tool, and what it means is what you can do with it, so that, in fact, the meaning of a term is the sum total of its possible uses. Now, it's in the nature of a picture that it, can picture, that it does, in fact, picture only one thing. Pictures an object or a state of affairs, where it's in the nature of a tool that it has many uses, perhaps an indefinite number of uses. Now, that applies to his view of... It might seem yes, like Wittgenstein was just saying sort of obvious points here, but remember, he is militating against a very powerful philosophical tradition. He's militating first against the idea of his own, that words get their meanings by standing for objects, and then secondly, an even older tradition that says words get their meanings by being associated with ideas in the head. And he's militating against a tradition that says, this goes back to Plato, that in order for a word to have a meaning, there must be some essence, there must be some essential trait that the word marks. So the interest of his um, remarks about language derives a lot from their uh, revolutionary or radical attack on a pre-existing tradition. Moving on now to the second step in my argument. This involves the psychology and linguistic research. There is now quite a lot of this research that indicates that the presence or absence of words has a significant impact on how we think, what in fact we see, what problems we identify, and what solutions come to our mind. Do you remember the famous example from psychology? In the picture, do you see a rabbit or do you see a duck? By changing the word given to you, you see different things. Of course, there has to be a rabbit or duck there, but they just brought your attention by language. Language has an active role. Whether you saw a duck or rabbit by default, would most likely be because of your past experience. But you'd have to accept that when the words duck or rabbit were added to the picture, suddenly your brain started to see particular shapes. For example, do you see a woman or do you see a saxophone player looking to the right? Of course, the picture hasn't changed at all. It's the words that have changed and you now see different things. You see the world differently as a result of hearing particular words. Let's move on now to the linguistic researchers. What if the language we are brought up to speak actually relates to the way we look at reality? From this perspective, a language is a particular way of conceptualizing the world and has close ties to culture. In the 1930s, Benjamin Lee Worf talked about language this way. He argued that different languages represent different ways of thinking about the world around us. This view has come to be called linguistic relativity. Exploring the grammar of the Hopi language, he concluded that the Hopi have an entirely different concept of time than European languages do, and that the European concepts of time and matter are actually conditioned by language itself. One practical consequence of linguistic relativity, direct translation between languages isn't always possible. Since Hopi and English aren't simply ways of expressing the same thing in different words, you can't actually preserve thoughts or viewpoints when you translate between them. 
in its strongest expression, linguistic relativity, the idea that viewpoints vary from language to language, relies on linguistic determinism, the idea that language determines thought. In other words, how people think doesn't just vary depending on their language, but is actually grounded in, determined by, the specific language of their community. Linguistic relativity has been abandoned and criticized over the decades, with critics aiming to show that perception and cognition are universal, not tied to language and culture. But some psychologists and anthropologists continue to argue that differences in a language's structure and words may play a role in determining how we think. Experiments on how speakers of different languages approach non-linguistic tasks continue to spark this debate. I will be using only language to address uh, you, no image. So let me give you, uh, there's a, a broad body of work here, but let me give you some of my favorite examples. I'll start with um, the domain of space and navigation. And this starts with the work of uh, John Hovland, who's here in anthropology. John noticed that there are some languages that, uh, unlike English, uh, which uh, English often relies on words like left and right, so we might say it's your left leg, your right leg, move your cup to the left, there are some languages that don't use body-centered terms like this, and instead they put everything in cardinal directions, like north, south, east, and west. So you say things like, uh, there's an ant on your southwest leg, or move your cup to the north, northeast a little bit. Now, to speak a language like this, you have to stay oriented. You have to know which direction is which, just in order to be able to speak the language properly. And speakers of languages like this, in fact, do stay oriented, and they can perform navigational feats that we used to think were beyond um, human another ability. Another domain where you find so, big uh, differences like this is how we think about time. Uh, so across languages, we tend to use a lot of spatial language to uh, create time. So in English, we talk about the best ahead of us, the worst behind us. We also use our writing direction to organize time. So it might be very common for an English speaker to organize time from left to right. Of course, if you're a Hebrew or Arabic speaker, you might think that time goes from right to left. Uh, if you don't have left and right uh, in your language and you don't use those ideas in your culture, you might actually orient time from east to west. So I've done some studies like this showing people who orient themselves in absolute space tend to orient time in absolute space as well. Uh, time can also reverse on the front-back axis, so we think of the future as ahead of us and the past as behind us, but work by Rafael Nunez here in Cognitive Science shows the Ayamara put the past in front of them and the future behind them. You see this pattern in the metaphors and the language, and you also see that in the way people use their bodies, the way they gesture when they're talking about the past and the future. Um, so those are big differences. They're also pretty deep differences that uh, languages uh, create. Uh, let me give you an example. Um, some languages don't have exact number words. Uh, some languages have only words like one, two, and then few and many. And some don't even strictly have one and two. And uh, not, uh, not too surprisingly, speakers of languages like that don't keep track of exact numbers. They don't have uh, algebra. They don't do any of the things that would be required to build a room like this, for example. Uh, and so that is a deep, I say that's a deep difference because uh, a simple thing like having count words in your language opens the door to a whole lot of other transformative cognitive abilities that can really change uh, not just the way you think, but also your material culture and the way you communicate that material culture. And These studies suggest that each language comprises uh, its own cognitive toolkit, uh, a, a set of... Um, 
a set of instructions that speakers of your language and generations past have created for you, a set of ideas and tools that have been honed and fine-tuned over generations. And uh, some, some of the languages in the world may provide very similar toolkits, others will be very different. But I think what's important about this is that linguistic diversity is a real testament to the ingenuity of the The question human is not mind. whether the word cerulean suddenly brings into existence a new color or something that you couldn't see before with your eyes. Perception is able to distinguish, you're all able to distinguish between the two blues if you look carefully. The interest here, the key question is whether mentioning the word cerulean has suddenly brought into your attention the fact that these two colors are radically different. In fact, they are so different that as put beautifully by Mary Sweep in this, in this film, this has had millions of dollars implication for the industry because this color was the one that was sought from the moment where it was put into the, the spotlight. And one way of putting things into the spotlight is using language. In fact, by just saying the word Cerulean, suddenly this difference becomes more evident. I'm not claiming it wasn't there. It was there, obviously. And for those who didn't know the word, I probably knew the word, but the idea is that there is a marked difference between turquoise, for example, mm. as a shade of blue, and cerulean. Once that distinction has been put into the open by using language, the difference becomes salient enough that it's going to be, you're going to bring your attention to it. And from that point on, your, your whole cognitive system is geared towards that distinction. Suddenly, this difference matters. And that is what I, the point I'm trying to convey today, is that I'm not going to try and claim that uh, language and thought are to be equated. In fact, the strong version of the Wurfian hypothesis, as uh, Jeff has put, has put it before, is untenable. In fact, it's an aberration. We all know that thought exists without language, for instance. Animals <coughs> think. Is there anyone in the room that thinks that animals don't think? Can you put your hand up? There's ample evidence, massive evidence, that animals can think. And it's been shown in, in many species, down to insects and octopus going through to, you know, to uh, lower mammals. How could they think if thought was to be equated with language in any valuable way? This is not the case. Language and thought are not to be equated. But what, is, what I'm trying to argue now, and I'm going to argue stronger and stronger about this, is that there is a very strong connection between the two, and that each, they influence each other. The problem, the fundamental problem in the discussion, I think, is conceiving the relationship as being unilateral. That is um, one direction. The concept generates a thought, and the, and the, th the thought process generates languages, labels that are used to describe thoughts. But the way back is missing. And what I want to argue is that when you have a, a label, or a word, or a grammatical structure, or a saying, or an expression that describe a thought, there is feedback. That manipulation of language influences the way we think. And this relation is uh, constantly active. There's, there's, there's constant exchange between the thought layer, if you want, and the surface layer, which is what we use uh, to communicate information between ourselves. I want you to uh, understand how I, I, I reason. So for me, the first point is that there is a misunderstanding. Uh, you know, Pinker's view that uh, language being the same as thought is a conventional absurdity is agreed. It doesn't need discussion because language is not the same as thought. There is no equivalence between the two concepts. However, 
there is a massive effect of thought, um, um, on thought by language and reciprocally. These two entities exchange, permanently modulate each other. And this is uh, the view that I think is not a weak hypothesis. It's actually the, the only uh, one that's really uh, interesting. Now, there is um, a lot of work, experimental work, and uh, Jeff alluded to, to um, you know, the difficulty of testing this. And of course, the, the only terrain, the only field on which you can test that hypothesis is by looking at nonverbal modulation of thinking based on language um, distinctions. And there is a, a fantastic corpus of work by people by, uh, like Gary Lupian, or uh, there are others that I, don't, I won't cite to, to many people, but I can give you an example of Gary Lupian's work, which I think is very convincing on that front. In a paper that was just published recently, for example, he showed that by virtue of giving the label of an object that's about to come up in a visual stream presented very, very fast in competition to the two eyes, the probability of seeing that object in the stream increases dramatically and significantly. Now, how is it that something that you could not perceive without having the label ahead of time becomes perceivable? Now, of course, you can imagine that the experiment is very well controlled. That is, that there are lots of trials where the object is not there and it's not reported. Uh, trials in which the object is there and is reported correctly. And the probability of hit rates, the capacity to extract that object accurately, mm -hmm. depends on seeing the labels before. Now, how can you explain the fact that the language, just language being presented, which has no relationship to the probability of appearance in an object, makes you more aware of that object coming up? In other words, this is an effect of language on very low-level awareness. Now, the only explanation for this is that very elementary processes in cognition, human cognition, are influenced by language. And, in fact, it makes sense in terms of how the brain works. These linguistics are saying that the presence or absence of particular words have a significant impact on our perception of the world. Let me now move on to the third part of my argument. This part is on child development. This again is clearly a massive area of research and I can't cover it all. It includes the work of Piget and Vygotsky. Uh, Vygotsky is particularly relevant, I think, to, um, to what I'm arguing here in the linguistic term. Um, he sees child development as very dependent on what is said to them. But let me go back first to exactly what uh, happens to a newborn baby, what we know about it. And uh, one thing that uh, recent research has shown is just how much children imitate. We seem to have an innate ability, an innate system for seeing the world in terms of actions. Children imitate walking, falling, smiling, talking, language. Uh, they imitate sports, uh, they'll imitate uh, eating habits, culture, uh, they'll imitate uh, reading and writing processes, how we sit down, where we sit down, uh, in fact almost everything that human beings do. I would like to add that I think they're imitating what things do. And it's a very small step then to move to what can be done with things, their uses, their functionality. So we see somebody use something like a brick in a certain way 
and we can imitate how that brick is used. Children will do much the same with things like fairness. They'll see what fairness does, or they'll see things like friendship, and they'll see what friendship does. They can imitate these as actions. So one of the advantages of this uses of what things do, uh, interpretation of the world, is it's very easy to slip into the abstract. So we can ask, what does democracy do? Or what does fairness and justice do? The same is true of, say, mathematical concepts. We can ask, what does pi do? also need to know called pi. Mathematical constants same everywhere. Why? The pi circumference by diameter. This is pretty fly. Always get 3.14 no matter certain size. the first to discover pi. Used it to build the pyramids so high. Our human brains are very good at remembering, remixing, and recalling patterns of activity. We are pattern recognition animals. This suggests that our brains are really asking what things do, what use are they, what is their function. They're not really asking what are they. So for example, your brain would like to know what use truth is, rather than what truth is. Having imitated sounds in language, we can also start to put those sounds and languages against these uses. That is, we can name uses. We can allocate names and phrases to activities. An elephant is what an elephant does. Fish is what a fish does. Sheep are what sheep do. We allocate the name of these things to certain functionality. In his book, uh, The Meaning of Lift, Douglas Adams lists numerous activities that haven't yet been named. Okay, so this is a dictionary of things that should be worse than aren't. Teaside, a decision process. Having made two identical cups of tea and sensing that one is marginally better than the other, deciding which one to keep for yourself. <laughs> activities can be remixed. Uh, in fact, arguably, that's what creativity is. Quite what use remixing Teesside and Earl's Ferry um, is not clear to me, but sometimes uh, remixing is very useful. Sentences make this particularly easy. So notice now then that we've actually flipped what Wittgenstein said. He said that the meaning of words depends on how they're used. We've flipped that into words remind us of particular uses or activities. So now I've re reached the fifth step 
in my arguments, which is that this is actually very useful and practical stuff. It can help us to identify and solve problems. So consider the example presented in the movie Robin Hood with Kevin Cosner in it. They were in their camp when suddenly on the horizon, on the hill above them, appeared lots of, I think they were meant to be Scotsmen. Clearly they had a problem now and they were looking for a solution. Notice that someone suggests a solution that they should take to the trees. The command could have been to run, surrender, attack or form a Saxon wall. But it's not. It's to the trees. The words invoke a coordinated response. They interpret the situation. They make sense of it. They give meaning to it. They say what to do. It's a solution to the problem. In the same way that I mentioned gorillas, lambs and saxophone players, and you could see those, the command to the trees reminds everybody of how they can see this situation. It brings options to their thoughts. In the trees, the massed archers have a height advantage. It's a useful solution. The suggested interpretation of the situation can be rejected. In this next clip, the pattern of activity called escape fire is rejected by the majority of the firemen. a forest fire broke out in Man Gulch, Montana. Smoke jumpers were parachuted in a team of 15 headed by a foreman named Wag Dodge. The fire exploded. It was moving over 600 feet a minute, faster than most people can ever run, and so 15 firefighters were trapped. Wag Dodge had an idea. He knew that they would lose the race back to the top of the ridge, so he suddenly stopped, he lit a match, and he lit a fire at his own feet. And the fire spread around him. I imagine the other smoke jumpers thought the guy was crazy. But his idea was this. If I burn the fuel around me, then when the fire comes and overtakes me, I'm safe. I'll be in what came to be known as an escape fire. He tried to get the other smoke jumpers to join him, and nobody did. The fire overtook the crew, killing 13 men and burning 3,200 acres. Wag Dodge survived, nearly unharmed, in his escape fire. It's just tragic to think of the answer being there. Because of language, the activity of escape fires can be, trained, can be taught in training to other firemen. Having gone through two practical examples of how words can invoke patterns of activity that can be used to interpret your problem situation, let's move on now to a slightly more conceptual one, that of the pattern of activity that's called truth. Under the pragmatic turn, sorry, under the linguistic turn, the question we ask ourselves is not what is truth, but what use is truth. What interpretation of the world does the activity of being truthful bring to us? 
Well, the answer, of course, is things like justice and science. The search for truth is a process, an agreed process by a community of how they're going to undertake investigations, either into people's guilt or into how the universe works. The pattern of activity known as truth has been very useful in developing science, the Enlightenment. This has improved the lives of countless millions of people. Talking of science, that provides another example of the interpretive, interpretive or sense-making role of language from the history of science. The stars have not changed much in thousands of years, but our interpretation of them has changed considerably. Originally, they were understood to be the result of holes in glass spheres that were held up in the heavens. Then, through Newton, they were interpreted to be something to do with attraction or gravity that held them all together and held them in motion. Um, more recently, with Einstein, we've moved to an interpretation that's uh, about a time-space distortion. Fame goes to those who provide us with a new conception of how nature works, new patterns of activity to help us see the cosmos anew. Mendel gave us the idea of dominant genes, Curie of radioactivity, Wagner continental drift, Bohr an understanding of the structure of, of atoms. And so it goes on, uh, each person providing us a new way of interpreting the world, which is useful uh, and can be elaborated upon. And typically, of course, they have to be named in order to be communicated to everybody else. So in conclusion, to make the linguistic turn is to think of words as being proactive doing things. Words, phrases or language make sense of, they interpret, they give meaning to our world. They are labels for possible patterns of activity. The linguistic term explains how humans actually think about complicated issues. Our species with language has used that language to name and share millions of patterns of activity, enabling us to defend ourselves from the many cruelties of nature. So your assignment or mission uh, would be to ask yourself what different words make you think about different things with your organization. So. For example, if I use the word useful, what does it make you think about for your organization? If I use the word anti-fragile, which you may need to look up, how would that make you think differently about your organization? Other words might be innovation, recombination, Internal logic, 
core competencies or dynamic capabilities. Notice how my mention of these words changes what you think about and if you wanted your organization to think about something specifically you would need to name it, to label it, so that people could focus on it. Remembering that these words, core competencies, we need to focus on what they do, their pattern of activity, not what they look like. So if you're using the concept justice or truth to think about your organization, you should be saying to yourself, what does truth do? Uh, not what is it. Thank you.